This is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit, and this is our New Year's Day weekend show, the fourth episode of our podcast. And I'm going to get right into what's bothering everybody right now, which is just the ever-changing COVID rules that are now officially, officially out of control. The hypocrisy of how they're applied and how the vaccine has been jammed down the throats of, of Americans is really fully exposed now. In the last week or two, I would say everything has really changed on how we deal with it because it's clear, finally, that everyone is getting this Omicron variant. And we can no longer, I suppose, selectively quarantine people who are contracting it because just too many people are getting it. Everybody's getting it. So what's happening now is now that you've got Joe Biden in office, you've got the Democrats in place, they can't afford to have the country shut down again, even though so many people are getting it. Because what will end up happening is the economy will be destroyed. Things, you know, people will lose their jobs again, and they can't afford that. Why? Because it will end up resulting in them not getting elected in the 2022 midterms, which are coming up. And that's what happened to Trump. I mean, let's be honest, that's what cost him the election was the fact that the uh, coronavirus just destroyed the country and he was in place. He was the president in place at the time. So that was that. He took responsibility for it. So let's see how things have changed now that people, so many people are getting Omicron. There's just so many people getting it and things have just changed dramatically because of the reality of dealing with a country where everybody has it. In the NFL, doctors out of nowhere suddenly stopped testing vaccinated players who felt well. And, but we all know that there are asymptomatic cases of COVID where you feel perfectly fine, but you have it. You've got the vaccine. You just don't know it. And we've been told that you can pass it on, even though you're asymptomatic. That's what we've been told for two years. But all of a sudden, the NFL just changed course. Now they're just not testing these people anymore. And the you know, clear reason why is because there'd be more positive tests if you're testing people that are vaccinated and feel fine. We don't want too many players getting it because when there's more players that get it, that means more players have to sit out. And so many are already out due to positive COVID tests. And the product on the field is really suffering. You've got third string quarterbacks that are playing regularly now. You would have entire NFL years that passed without a single third string quarterback ever taking a snap for any team. All of a sudden, though, you've got players that have no you know, business even being on an NFL roster and they're starting for even good teams. And now you've got the playoffs just around the corner. So if the product on the field is not the best product, product, there will be less people watching the games. And if there's less people watching the games, there's going to be less TV ratings. And if there's less TV ratings, that means there's going to be less money for the next TV contract for the NFL. And the NFL is such a woke uh, business, because that's really what it is, that they put BLM all over the field, if you remember when they were pandering to Black Lives Matter after the George Floyd murder. And now they're against science. I mean, who could possibly have imagined that the NFL would be against science? They're like a red stater, according to Joe Biden. 
Why would they be against the CDC? Why would they be against Joe Biden? One reason, money, money. That's it. And it's the same thing with the NBA. You've got more players that have played in, in an NBA game this year than any other one in history, even though the season is like not even half over. Games are canceled regularly because you can't play them when, you know, the entire team has COVID, right? So the product is suffering because you've got, again, you've got G League players who stink, shouldn't be on the roster, and they're playing, you know, major parts in games. And what do you think's happening? The TV ratings, obviously, are going down. So what did the NBA do all of a sudden? You know, that's another woke league. We know how woke they are. They have the time for quarantine for players who have COVID from 10 days to six, almost half. Why? For one reason, to get them back on the court faster. It's all about money. That's all this has ever been about is money. Now, it, when they did this, the NBA did this, all of a sudden COVID recommended that people who have uh, tested, excuse me, the CDC recommended that people who have COVID stay under quarantine for 10 days. Remember that. That's how it started. It used to be 14 days. And as soon as the NBA and the NFL decided to change their COVID policies to get sick players back in action, suddenly the CDC decided to change the 10-day quarantine period to five days. So now you can leave your home after five days as long as your symptoms are improving. That's a first, right? Now, and that's kind of a shock. That's against science, we were told, like, I don't know, an hour ago. The CDC, there's more. The CDC came out this week and said that after you quarantine with COVID, well, all of a sudden you're not required to have a negative COVID test before leaving quarantine. Remember that? That was the rule forever. And I wonder why they changed that rule. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it has to do because they can't test enough people. Too many people are getting Omicron. They don't have enough tests to test them. There's a shortage because as we learned this week also, Vanity Fair had an article that Biden and his team was in, were incompetent and not ordering more tests when they had the chance in October in the lead up to the winter, which was presumably going to be an uptick in, uh, in COVID cases, which there were. So, but according to the uh, director of the CDC, no, 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 no. The reason it's not because there's a lack of tests that exist, it's because they're not needed because the tests can sometimes detect remnants of the virus for up to 12 weeks, even after a person is low, no longer contagious, which means there could be false positives. Now, now why all of a sudden are they telling us that there can be false positives when we were told for almost two years that these, you have to get a test. If you want to go back to work, if you've got COVID, you want to get on a plane, You've got, COVID. well, you're going to have to get a negative COVID test if you want to get back. We're told now that there are false positives, but all of a sudden, because there's not enough tests available, because Joe Biden didn't order enough, now all of a sudden, don't sweat it. Everything that we said to you before, just forget it. Just forget it. They didn't mention this for the last two years. Now, I don't want anyone to ever say that Joe Biden isn't prepared for COVID. I, mean, I should take that back because you know, that's what he ran on. Remember what he said, Donald Trump killed hundreds of thousands of people and that he would beat the crap out of COVID. I mean, this old man with poo in his diaper is telling us last year that he was going to beat the crap out of COVID. Joe Biden would handle it because Trump couldn't. Well, we already know that Biden screwed up and didn't order 
the manufacturer of rapid COVID tests in October when he had the chance. He could have ordered more than 730 million at-home COVID tests per month is what he was offered. Didn't do it. And that was, again, in advance of the recent surge, which was expected. He refused to do it. And what ends up happening now is you've got a bunch of idiots. If you look in, in the newspaper, idiots standing in the street, it's four degrees out. They're wrapped around the building three times, presumably sick, which is why they want to get these COVID tests. They're sick as a dog. They're standing outside on the street in winter for three hours for a friggin' test. That's what it's become because of Joe Biden. First of all, by the way, let's just say you have COVID. You know, what are you going to do? What, what are you going to do differently if you even have it? Who cares? Just go to bed until you feel better. That's what everybody's doing anyway. And stay the hell away from people if you're afraid you're going to give it to someone. But I do, in, in fairness, and I'm not being sarcastic for once, I do understand that Biden's claim that there's no way they could get so many tests made in October to be ready for the, the winter holiday COVID surge. So why not start the ramp up uh, last January? He could have done that, right? Didn't have to be just from October on. He could have done it last year. So what does Biden do to fix the mess? Well, as typical of Biden, he signed a $137 million deal with a German pharmaceutical company for a COVID test strip factory that will take three years to build and will then start producing 83.3 million tests a month in late 2024. At the earliest, that's three years from now. And, and why is three years from now? I thought this shit was going to be done by then. I thought this shit was going to be done by now, we were told by all the experts, by science. Science told us that. But why is Biden giving Germany money to build a factory to increase production of COVID testing kits? An American company couldn't build this factory in Wisconsin? Makes no sense. Anyway, the rules have changed again, once again, and now you don't need to get a negative COVID test to go back to school, to go back to work. If you contracted it, you don't need to quarantine for 14 days, for 10 days. Now it's just five. And people who are vaccinated and boosted don't even have to quarantine at all if they're exposed to someone with COVID, according to the CDC. And this is what they said, quote, individuals who have received their booster shot do not need to quarantine following exposure, but should wear a mask for 10 days after the exposure. I mean, it's just these rules, you can't keep them straight because they just keep changing. But this is a new thing now. This is all new. Now that the liberals realize that continuing to shut down society due to anyone with COVID, you know, having to stay home, that it'll destroy the economy. And they realize that voters will blame them for destroying the economy when people are finally getting back on their feet. Somehow when Trump was in office, the left had no problem shutting it all down in blue states after blue states. Now, you know, making you take a COVID test and pass it before leaving quarantine, the quarantine period being 14 days and then 10. Now that Biden's in office, he's doing horribly, obviously. I don't know many people that really like him other than people that hate the prospect of Trump coming back, which I'm sure there are tons. They can't afford to lose the midterm elections as Democrats. All of a sudden, COVID isn't so bad. You don't have to isolate. You can play your basketball. You can play your football. It's okay. And suddenly the left is saying that COVID isn't bad. You can watch just the media. Chris Hayes, that, that freak on MSNBC, COVID is just the flu now. 
don't change your life because of it. LeBron James, you know, with his massive amount of education in all of these issues, you know, he's an immunologist when he's not dribbling a basketball. He put out a meme. COVID is the flu, is the common cold. It's all the same. And he's truth is he's finally right. A broken clock is in fact right twice a day. Even Dr. Fauci claims that kids in the hospital with COVID are there not because of COVID, but just because they have it too, because everybody seemingly has this Omicron variant. And it's not exactly killing young kids regardless. We all know that. The CD said all of a sudden now that a Democrat's in office and an important election is coming up, we have to take into account societal needs, not just spreading prevention. And, and, and you know, this is bullshit about how no one is taking the COVID scare anymore. I mean, no one cares anymore. The USC basketball team has a 100% vaccination rate. USC, Southern California, bastion of academic integrity, 100% vaccinated. And guess what? The entire team has COVID now, just about. The vaccine didn't do a damn thing to stop you from getting it, despite the fact that we were told months ago that uh, Rachel Maddow cried on TV about this so-called fact that once you get the vaccination, that's it. It's done. Just get the vaccine and COVID ends forever for you. I mean, this thing was crying on TV about it. Got to get the, the vaccination. Well, we've learned now that the vaccine doesn't stop you from getting it. And I'm sick of the left telling me, well, you had no problem with the polio vaccine, the smallpox vaccine, the chickenpox vaccine. Just shut up and take the COVID vaccine. Well, hey, assholes, guess what? Do you know anyone with polio, smallpox, chickenpox, rubella, the measles, tetanus, the mumps? No, of course you don't, because those vaccines actually worked. Now, tell me if you know anybody who's been vaccinated uh, from the COVID virus who now has it. So many people. It's not the same thing. Clearly, what it is, is it prevents you from getting really sick or dying, which is wonderful. I mean, that's fine. But we were promised something different. And it's clear that Fauci and the CDC don't really know what they're doing. They're, they're poking around in the dark. The CDC slashed the estimate that Omicron was responsible for 73% of all American COVID cases. That was a week ago. Then this week, they said it's just 23% is Omicron. That's a 50% difference in one week. Does that sound like they even have a clue what they're doing? And we're told you must help your community get vaccinated so you won't kill your friends and neighbors. Well, people who are vaccinated are getting COVID as much as people who aren't vaccinated. They're all transmitting it seemingly at the same rate, including asymptomatic people that have COVID. The vaccine, as I said, just stops you from getting sick or dying. And again, that's great. But if you're getting it because you were vaccinated and then you're still giving it to other people, I don't know how you're necessarily helping your friends and, and your community. And then look at this tiny territory of Gibraltar. It's the most vaccinated part of the world with the percentage of the people being fully vaccinated at greater than 99%. I read that they've given so many vaccinations that it covers 140% of the population. Nevertheless, they had so many COVID cases. Anyway, they had to cancel Christmas. The government said, quote, given the exponential rise in the number of cases, the government intends to cancel a number of its own functions, including official Christmas parties, official receptions, and similar gatherings. And, you know, liberals have the 
balls to suggest that people who don't trust the vaccine are mad hatters, that they're conspiracy nuts. Well, guess what? That cackling moron, Kamala Harris, she said she wouldn't trust the Trump vaccine. That's what she called it when she was running for president in 2019. Now she loves it. <laughs> now, we were told in March of this year, just nine months ago, that the vaccine would ensure that 95% of us wouldn't get COVID. Now, again, as I said, it's helpful, but it's different than what they told us. And now the people that should know and clearly didn't know are telling us that we need to take three shots of it. So, you know, it's, we don't even know if it's going to protect against future variants. We just don't know. No one knows. Why don't they know? Isn't that what their, their profession is? That's what their expertise is. Schools in New York are going remote again. But for some reason, the New Year's Eve party in Times Square went on as planned. Why? It's a bunch of people crowded into a small space. You know, most of them aren't wearing masks. How can you take this seriously that kids have to go remote for school and they're not even the ones that are in any kind of danger? And you know, all those tinfoil hat-wearing lunatics, and God knows there are plenty in this country. Guess what? The CDC, the American government, finally gave them a win. Finally. They're finally right this time. And I'm so damn sick of hearing that it's only the red staters who won't get vaccinated. It's not true. You don't hear the left again, I've said this before, ever complaining about the fact that the black community is so wildly under-vaccinated. And they don't say it because they don't want to offend their supporters, so they just go after Republicans. And again, as I've said, the blacks aren't getting vaccinated because they don't trust the government. Can you blame them? Now, here's a, a really telling stat. In New York, just under 17% of children ages 5 to 11 are fully vaccinated. Just under 17%. Why? We believe in New York here. The truth is even liberals don't believe this bullshit anymore because the story keeps changing. Listen to this. Three months ago until now in New York, three months ago, the average number of weekly cases, it was 3,400 weekly in New York of COVID cases three months ago. Now it's 78,000. That's an increase of 23 times. What's the death increase during this same period? Aren't you curious? Is it 23 times as well? Well, three months ago, there was a seven-day average of 35 per week deaths. 35. Now, it's about 80, an increase of a little more than two times. Not 23 times, a little more than two times. And you don't even know if the people that are dying from it didn't die from something else. And they're just saying, well, he had COVID when he died of diabetes and he weighed 900 pounds. You don't know that. So clearly this Omicron is not that big of a deal. And 84% of New Yorkers have received at least one vaccination. So it's clear that the vaccine isn't preventing you from getting COVID. It's just lowering the death toll, which again, it's wonderful. It's good. I get it. And, but no one is taking it seriously anymore because no one's dying from it. Only in the most liberal places in America are we being exposed to such mass hysteria. Of course, you're going to have colleges and universities in America, the most liberal shitholes in the entire world. Yet, for some reason, the president and vice president of our country, they're walking around half the time without their masks, cackling and laughing. Politicians are partying without masks on. They're openly laughing at us. 
And, you know, again, if we can go back just to show that no one's taking it seriously, nor really should they, people are gambling on COVID. They're gaming COVID. Listen to this. Back to the USC basketball team. The whole team and most of the staff just about got COVID, despite the fact they were all vaccinated and many of them boosted. And they were forced to postpone or cancel three games recently. But the coach was happy. He came out and he said he was happy. It's the beginning of the season. He noted that since most of the team tested positive at the same time, they won't have to test again, the team, for 90 days. That's the rule, which takes them through March Madness. The coach said, quote, the benefit of having an entire team have COVID at once is that this will be our only pause due to COVID in our program. He already knows it without knowing whether anybody's going to get it again, because he knows they're not going to test the players regardless, even if they're sick, they're just going to keep playing. It's a joke. It's a scam. So they don't have to find out anymore if anybody has COVID and then they won't have to sit those players out for five days. They just won't test. All of a sudden you don't test players, you know, at all now because you don't have to just to get the product back on the court. We need that money. And yet we're still forced in New York to wear masks indoors. Kids have to wear them in school all day, even though the schools don't even care about the COVID anymore like they used to. When it first started out, you know, in March, I guess, of 20, through the end of the year, anytime a kid in school got COVID, you'd get an email from the school saying, you know, somebody got COVID. Um, we removed the kid from the school. We're doing uh, contact tracing. Now you'll get a, a call from us. If we think your child was in contact, you'll have to quarantine. Everybody's going to quarantine. And it's so scary. Now uh, kids are getting COVID and it's just, nobody cares. They're just, they're treating it like it's a cold or the flu. They're going home. They're staying home. They're sick. And that's that. And when they get better, they come back. But so why are colleges going remote again? Colleges are going remote now. Many colleges. For what reason? Just wear this fucking mask if you're so concerned about it. Socially distance. Your leftist masters are telling you it's not so bad anymore. Now you're paying all this money, a hundred grand a year for college, and you're going to be sitting in your home uh, avoiding the entire college experience. Why? Because of the flu? Come on. And, you know, as I said, if you just want to go look, look at a Knicks game. If you can bear looking at the Knicks these days, watch, watch the game. You got, you know, the crowd, I think they all have to be vaccinated even to get in. Most of them are wearing the masks. They're hanging from their chins, hanging on top of their heads. It's just bullshit. It's just virtue signaling bullshit. And then you got blue staters are moving in mass to red states. Why? You look at the numbers. Why are people moving the most to places like Florida, Texas, Arizona, South Carolina, Tennessee, and they're leaving the leftist shitholes of New York and California and Illinois with that bug-eyed uh, uh, governor, whatever the hell she is. What is her name? Lori Lightfoot. I guess she's the uh, mayor. I don't, what's the difference? Anyway, the leftists hate their states due to the overregulation, the lack of freedom that they themselves caused, that they voted for. And now they're moving to red states only to bring their same political ridiculousness to those states and they'll ruin them as well. Look at that AOC, that weirdo. She was in Miami. She's not wearing a mask. She's not wearing a mask. She's making me feel unsafe by not wearing a mask. I see her yucking it up with that freak ginger boyfriend of hers. This is what they are. They're not taking it seriously. 
She told us to take it seriously, and she goes to a red state. She's lambasting the governor, DeSantis, there while she's there because she wanted to escape what New York has become. She's a total hypocrite. Remember, it's okay. While she's running to a red state not wearing her mask, that's okay. She can still do her job, namely that she has an aide named Hussein Altamimi, who was just hired. He managed while she's away. You know, the work still has to get done. So she hires an aide and he does his job. What's like the first thing he did is he managed on social media to call Israel a racist European ethno state that was built on stolen land. This is all she is. Forget that Jews lived in the land that is now Israel for thousands of years before Muhammad, uh, the prophet of Islam, even married a six-year-old wife. Forget that this Hussein and AOC support a Muslim terror entity, Palestine, backed by Iran, which they celebrated on 9-11 and their elected government has targeted and killed Americans. That's okay. Forget all that. AOC didn't reprimand this wild savage who works for her because this is what she thinks. Of course she didn't reprimand. You've got these liberal Jewish Democrats who are so stupid. They're so stupid to continue to vote Democrat. And they're outraged that one of the leaders of their party has some psycho working for him who's a Jew hater. And they demand that she reprimand them. Why would she reprimand them? She believes it. She said the same thing. That's the Democratic Party now. Keep voting for your own demise, Jews. You're brilliant. Just brilliant. And just follow her into the oven. I'm sure you all fit in perfectly. Remember when she trashed Ted Cruz for going to Cancun when the power was out in Texas during the winter? Well, she's yucking it up maskless in Miami while her district has the most COVID cases it's ever had by like four times. Now, AOC and, and many of the lefties, as I said, they fled New York City. That's the land of Bill de Blasio, the absolute worst mayor in the history of any city, which really says a lot when you consider that we still have Chicago, Seattle, Minneapolis, and America. Now, they know it's clear. They're scolding us while they're here, but they are not taking this seriously. They know that the COVID is bullshit these days. As long as you're healthy. Now, if you're really unhealthy or if you're really old, it could be a problem if you've got some other diseases, no question. People are still dying from it. And I'm not talking about COVID at the beginning when people were, were dying from it. Now, they're really not. Now, of course, when AOC, this Alexandra Ocasio-Jimenez, uh, gets criticized, she did the only thing a psychotic woman can do under these circumstances. Instead of answering the criticism of her abandoning her state at this time, you know, the time that COVID was at an all-time high, she accused the Republicans of wanting to sleep with her. That's normal. That's normal. Because that's the only reason you'd criticize a woman, a brilliant woman like AOC, is because you want to fuck her? Are you serious? Are you serious? I mean, Jesus Christ. Now, listen, listen to how screwed up New York is. This is how insane New York is. And this is a story that's, a story that's barely been reported. Barely. Now, I'm going to be quoting. Monoclonal antibody treatments save lives, announced the New York City Department of Health in an October 26 public notice just a couple of months ago. These antibody treatments are, quote, available and life-saving, the agency said, noting that they, quote, have averted thousands of hospitalizations, at least 500 deaths among people treated in New York City. Now, the agency, the Department of Health, 
they urge the public to seek out these monoclonal antibody treatments as soon as possible. Quote, when given after early symptom onset, antibody treatments can decrease, decrease the risk of hospitalization and death due to COVID-19, which is why it is crucial to get tested for COVID-19 as soon as the symptoms begin, because the sooner someone is tested, the sooner the treatment can begin. And the point is, is that if you're really sick with it, you can't get these antibody treatments. You got to catch it at the beginning. And it's really a lifesaver. Now, the city's health agency quoted its own health commissioner, this Dr. Dave Chokshi, quote, the science shows that monoclonal antibody treatments work and can make all the difference when it comes to the severity of COVID-19 illness. So, of course, it urged that, quote, treatment should be given as soon as possible after someone tests positive for COVID. Studies from Pfizer that were cited by the agency independently demonstrated just how effective their antiviral treatment can be. It, quote, decreased COVID-19 linked hospitalization or mortality risk from any cause by 88%. That's a big deal. So not surprisingly, New Yorkers are trying to get their hands on these, these antibody treatments because they work as soon as you get COVID, not when you're sick in the hospital. It's too late, as I said, for the treatments to work then. But with Omicron, there's so many people with COVID, the antibody treatments are scarce. They're just, they just don't have enough, of course. Thanks, Joe Biden. So on December 27th, just a few days ago, the New York Department of Health put out a memo of guidance to healthcare providers on how to make decisions about who should be prioritized to receive these life-saving treatments and basically who should be deprioritized. And these are factors that are going to be, be used to determine the priority. Listen to the factors. Now, before determining the priority, not everyone is even eligible for antibody treatments. They said the Department of Health in their memo, they listed all the factors which must be met in order for a patient to be eligible. If it's age, they've got to be older than 12. <clears throat> they've got to have tested positive, as I said. The uh, progression of the virus has to be mild to moderate symptoms. But here are some additional requirements. That makes some sense. The patient, the COVID patient must have a medical condition or other factors that increase their risk for severe illness. And that makes sense because if you're just a regular person that gets COVID and you're healthy, you don't need to take up somebody's antibody treatment who really needs it, who's really got, you know, a risk for severe illness based on some underlying condition. So it makes sense to prioritize those people first because they're the ones that can really get sick and die. But check this out. The policy then states that anybody who is non-white, regardless of their age, their health, or underlying medical conditions, just if they're non-white, is automatically deemed to have met the requirement that one must have, quote, a medical condition or other factors that increases their risk for severe illness. So diabetes, an underlying medical condition, is the same as being black or Latin X. That's one of the conditions, the medical condition that allows you to get the treatment. Here's the exact language in the memo from the Department of Health. Quote, non-white race or Hispanic Latino ethnicity should be considered a risk factor as long-standing systemic health and social inequities have contributed to an increased risk of severe illness and death from COVID-19. So that means that a, a, a guy like Kyrie Irving, I don't know how old he is, 25, 26, 27, however old he is, a black professional athlete will automatically be deemed to be at a heightened risk to develop serious COVID illnesses, making them, they're instantly eligible for the antibody treatments, while a white guy 
the exact same age and has horrible health conditions, perhaps, excuse me, let's just say that the person's healthy, a healthy white guy, but he's from a poor background, he's not eligible. So if he's from the same lousy background as perhaps the average black person that the Department of Health considers to be at risk, sorry, you're white. The rich black athlete who has every kind of advantage, you go to the front of the line. This is New York. This is why no sane person wants to stay here anymore. This is why people are leaving the blue states. Now, back to Dr. Fauci. He is just, he's delusional at this point. He said the other day when referring to his critics, I'm going to be saving lives and they're going to be lying. What? It's going to be easy to criticize me, but they're really criticizing science because I represent science. Fuck you, you do. You don't. He's calling for the firing of members in the media who've ripped him, but he's okay with the lefty talking heads who told everyone that the vaccine was going to stop the virus dead in its tracks. He's okay with them. He's saving lives. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, America had 488,000 new cases, which was nearly double the highest numbers from last winter. On Thursday, the next day, that was a record on Wednesday, more than 580,000 new cases, which destroyed the record by almost 100,000 from the day before. He's really saving lives. The truth is he's guessing. He doesn't know what he's doing. No one does. Can't really fault them for that. No one really knows. But don't act as if you're 100% certain when you're not. He's flip-flopped his advice, and it changes by the day. And now listen, let's, let me be clear here. Fauci is not exactly the fault of the left. Trump inherited him. Trump kept him. Remember? Only the best, only the finest. Just like Trump kept or hired Chris Ray, the FBI, Jeff Sessions, John Bolton, Bill Barr, Betsy DeVos, Elaine Chow. Remember her? Mitch McConnell's wife, who he hates now, hired her, Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State. <clears throat> There's so many of the best of the best who kneecapped Trump at every turn and publicly turned on him, just like Fauci. Now, Trump was the one also that shut the country down initially in March of 2020. Instead of just letting people decide to stay home if they wanted or continue to work, millions of jobs were lost. Small businesses shut down forever. Now it's two years later, and many of these companies are never going to come back. People are just starting to get back on their feet. Many people, certainly the middle class, yet liberals who borrowed money to go to their leftist indoctrination centers, universities, they don't have to pay back their loans. For some reason, they're special. They're precious. They borrowed money to go to school with their eyes wide open, and they don't have to pay their money back? This is going on, what, almost two years? It's now continued until May? Why don't they have to make the payments while I'm still paying bills for the money that I borrowed? I have to work seven days a week to pay for everything. I don't have the same income I had before pre-COVID, but I've got to work constantly while these people are sitting on their asses and they're not paying their bills. I've got to pay their bills. I'm paying their bills. By the way, Anthony Fauci makes more than $400,000 a year. And when he retires, if he ever does, he'll get a pension of over 350000 a year. Do you know how much money you need to have in the bank to get a yearly payout of 350000 a year? Let's say your return is like 4% or so, which is certainly way higher than any CD rate at any bank in America. You got to have about $9 million in the bank. Does that seem right to you? That this guy's getting the benefit of $9 million in the bank for being wrong all the time? 
Well, now remember this. I, I have to say, I don't know if I've said it clearly enough. I'm for the vaccine. I think it helps people from getting very sick, hospitalized, or even dying. I do. I do. I've had two shots, Pfizer plus the booster. But when you keep changing the story, people stop trusting the government. And that's on the government. It's not on the people. I'm sorry. Now, we're going to take a quick break here, and we're going to get back to some legal stuff. I've blathered on long enough. We're going to talk about Ghislaine Maxwell. Did I pronounce that right? Um, we're going to talk about her and perhaps some other legal stuff when we get back from this break. Jeffrey Lichtman, Beyond the Legal Limit. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Jelaine Maxwell was convicted this week for crimes, including sex trafficking of a minor. I expect that she'll receive around 20 years when she's sentenced sometime next year, which may very possibly be a functional life sentence. And there's lots of talk about her, whether or not she'll cooperate now. And I don't think it's, it's really likely. She's too high up in this conspiracy. And Epstein, the person that she could have potentially cooperated against, is dead. So she's at the top. She's left holding the bag, so to speak. But I have no idea, at least in my mind, I, don't, I believe she did try to cooperate and it failed. One of the lawyers that she hired is a former federal prosecutor from the office that convicted her. And he's not exactly known as a trial lawyer for cases like this. So I assume that his role was to try to get cooperation for her. But clearly the feds had no interest. Sometimes, you know, what, the, what happens is that the feds believe that no matter how much info you may have, you're just too bad for them to cooperate, which is a little bit funny when you consider they take all sorts of maniacs as cooperators who've killed 10, 20 people, sold you know billions of dollars worth of cocaine, never told the truth a day in their lives just to get a bigger fish. But when you're the big fish as it is, suddenly they've got integrity in that office. Also, she spent, Jelaine Maxwell has spent months trashing the government and proclaiming her innocence. She'd have to do like a real 180 now and admit that she was guilty. I just don't see it happening. And, you know, regardless, uh, you know, what's left really at this point to talk about, you've got some big names that never got prosecuted. I think that was purposely done. They're trying to shut this down. You've got the guards that were asleep, that were unconscious when uh, Epstein killed himself at the MCC in Manhattan. They were indicted. Now they're dismissing the cases. All of a sudden they got their they're big fish and the patsies can be left off the hook. But here's one issue that I thought was funny that I have not seen discussed in the media at all, at all. One of her lawyers, Maxwell's lawyers, had purple hair during the trial. Listen, you heard that right, had purple hair. Now, I am all for people showing their individuality. I think it's, it's a nice thing. I do. People should have pride in themselves. And if they want to color their short, spiky hair purple, you know, more power to them. I don't care. You know, I don't care. This is America and we're free to do as we want here. But when you're a trial lawyer, you need to appeal to all of the jury, every last one of them, because getting even one juror over to your side could be the difference between a client dying in prison and being free. And I'll give you this as an example, the John Gotti Jr. trial that I had. <clears throat> in that case, there were some not guilty verdicts. The jury was hung on everything else. There were no convictions. Had he been convicted of anything in that case, he would have spent decades behind bars, decades. On some of the counts that were hung, the vote was 11 to 1 for conviction. One single juror saved Gotti from decades in prison, I think on two of the counts. Now, 
What if the juror didn't like what he or she perceived to be a gay person with flamboyant purple hair? Now, I don't know whether this lawyer is, is from the LGBTQRZ crowd. I just, I don't care. It doesn't make a difference. But in today's day and age, being gay is perceived by some to be a political issue. So why would you want to possibly offend people in the jury whose sexuality, whose orientation, you don't know? Now, I'm, I'm telling you this. Of course it's wrong to make a decision based on someone's orientation when you're a juror. Of course it's wrong. You don't do it based on either the defendant's sexual orientation or certainly the lawyer. What does the lawyer have to do with it? But this is reality. This juror doesn't have to come out during jury selection and announce his or her feelings on, on uh, gay issues. Just like when you pull the lever in a voting booth, you don't have to explain what your biases are. But in reality, people have biases. And as a trial lawyer, sometimes you have to just be a team player and subvert your individuality in order to appeal to as many jurors as possible. You know, what if there's Mets fans in the jury and you're going to wear a Yankee pin every day? Why would you want to do that? You're going to alienate somebody. Now, we all love to point to ourselves as lawyers and say, look at me, look at me, you know, with our appearance and, and whatnot. But sometimes you need to just chill it out a little bit, dress it down. You know, and again, even I'm, I'm acknowledging it's wrong for people to dislike you based on your orientation or the way you dress, but it's reality. It's reality. Because if your client gets convicted because a juror is an angry homophobe, will it give you as the lawyer any comfort knowing that the juror who did this, the jury that did it, is morally wrong, even as your client rots in prison forever? I, I would hope not. I would hope not. And I'm going to give you an example of sometimes. Now, look, if, if this lawyer learned that five people in the jury or even three or two people were, you know, very active members in the gay community, then I could see wearing the purple hair. You got a very tough case. You've got what you think is very little chance to win, but you may have some people that are going to walk through a wall for you because they can identify with your sexuality. Well, goddamn, then color your hair purple. But I don't think that's what happened here. They didn't talk about sexuality during jury selection. And I'll give you an example in a case of playing to a juror's personal feelings, how it can work. I had a client, a businessman charged in Clarkstown, New York, a very white, uh, very police-centric town is Clarkstown, New York. And this client was charged with assaulting a police officer. And this was a really difficult case. The client is a large Jewish businessman, and he was visiting his ex-wife, who he hated. She called the police and said that he had a knife, and she was afraid that he was going to hurt her. She didn't see the knife, but she said it was in his pocket, she thought. So the police naturally show up in Clarkstown, New York, and they asked the, uh, the client to remove his hands from his pocket, and he refused. Multiple times he was asked, and every single time he refused, they said, just remove your hands and we can get out of here. The client refused to do it. Refused. And they tried to reason with him, look, we're just here. She said you have a weapon. Just show us you don't have it, and we will be out of your hair. He just wouldn't do it. So finally, the police said, look, we have no choice, but we're going to remove your hands for you if you won't do it to show us that you're not armed. He refused. So they approached him, one on each side, and they tugged at his arms, and he resisted, and they all fell into a heap on the ground. He didn't throw any punches, but he just kept his hands jammed in his pants and his pockets, and everybody fell in a heap to the ground. And during the fracas, one of the officers suffered a torn ligament in his thumb. 
guess what? That's a big deal. The law in New York is very clear on assaulting a cop. If a cop is doing his lawful duty and you injure him during the duty, even without the intention to harm him, if he gets injured, you're convicted of assaulting a cop and it's a two-year mandatory minimum sentence. That's a pretty big matzo ball for this client. So the client had hired me just a few weeks before the trial and I asked for a continuance. And, you know, in state court, it's a little different than federal court. You don't always get the instant reaction back on issues like this. So I asked for a continuance and I was basically just told to come to court on the day of the, uh, the trial was supposed to start. So I got ready for the trial regardless for the most part, not fully, presuming that when I went to court and said, look, you know, I just got off another case, which I had. This was the year before I tried uh, El Chapo. I figured that I would get, you know, a week, two weeks extension. I wasn't asking for a lot. And this was a short trial. <clears throat> well, I got to court and guess what? The judge refused. And he brought me into the back, into his chambers, and he told me under no uncertain terms that my client should accept the two-year offer because if he was convicted, he was getting five years. And he told me, go tell your client that. And also, by the way, you're not getting a continuance. We're opening in an hour if your client doesn't take it. He was putting pressure on me to put pressure on the client to take two years. Well, guess what? The client refused. He's like, no way. Now, we had no defense in this case because... There's no question that the cop was hurt while doing his lawful duty. You know, I didn't even know what the defense could be. And now I've got to open in an hour. Now, multiple law enforcement witnesses, including the victim who hurt his thumb, uh, they described the fact exactly the same, that the officers were doing their job. The defendant didn't comply. There was a scuffle and an officer was hurt. A very open and shut case. So I could certainly understand why the judge wanted me to tell the client to take the two years because two is better than five that he was going to get if he was can be convicted. In addition, this town is filled. The jury was going to be filled with all cops and cop family members. It's a cop town. But, you know, typical of my career, and this is, I don't know if this is a blessing or a curse. I went to the client and said, look, you know, here's what you're facing and I've got to open in an hour. And he says to me, there's no way I'm taking it. We're going to go to trial and you're going to win. You're a great lawyer. Like, <laughs> jeez great. That's no pressure there. So anyway, we're picking the jury. The entire jury pool is white. Maybe there was a couple of non-whites out of like 90 people. And I'm looking for anyone who doesn't have a law enforcement member in the family. And it's not easy. You know, if it's not them, it's their father, it's their brother, it's their husband, it's their cousin, it's their best friend. And jury selection takes a while. What you do is you put jurors in a box, you question them. It's called voir dire. And you decide at the end of the questioning, both sides question, which ones have given answers, which jurors have given answers that need to be struck for cause. If they say something like, look, I just can't be fair. That guy looks obnoxious and I want to convict him. You know, that person then gets removed for cause at the end of each round. You also get a handful of what's called peremptory challenges and you get to use them even though there's no obvious cause just because you don't like some of their answers or what they look like, something. But you only have a handful of them, so you got to really use them wisely. Otherwise, you're just going to be stuck with whoever gets past a charge challenge, uh, excuse me, a challenge for cause. So we're now uh, in jury selection. The prosecutor starts to question the jury in the box, and I see that there's a one a black dude that gets put into the box, and he's getting questioned. Now, of course, I want him on the case because blacks usually have had you know, different experiences than whites when it comes to cops. And Maybe he doesn't like cops. I don't know. What else did I have at this point? So the prosecutor starts to question the jury. 
to discern whether there's any prejudices that are either for or against the state. And uh, he questions everybody, and I'm questioning, and I get up to question the jury pool. And during the questioning, I present you know the themes of the case and ask the jurors questions about them, you know, to learn whether they can be fair. And at the end of each round of questioning, the jury pool, as I said, you have to make a determination whether you want to use a strike or not. <clears throat> now, while I'm questioning this group of jurors, I mentioned that my, when my client was arrested, it was our claim that he was beaten by the cops. He had bruises on his face and body. The cop's position was, hey, you know, we tumbled on the ground and it was a tussle and that's how he got hurt. There's no way, you know, we're Clarkstown, New York cops. We would never do that. So, but that's all I had. So as I'm mentioning this to the jurors in the box, the black guy in the front, in a very strong Islands accent, I thought maybe Haiti, says, that happened to me too. I had a case against the cops. And I heard this. It was hard to understand, but I heard it. I heard it, but I ignored it instantly. Why did I ignore it? Because if I start questioning him about it, most li likely I'm going to learn that he had a bad experience with a cop. And you know, why do I want that to come out for the prosecutor to use that as a challenge cause, a cause challenge and get rid of him? So I'll just shut my mouth and not say a word to this black dude in the front. The court ends for the day. We resume the next morning. And that night before we went in, I had the client, the juror's name, because in that case, you're allowed to get the juror's names. And I did a search on these federal uh, court databases and state. And sure enough, I found the guy's case. He sued the White Plains Police Department for assaulting him when he was being arrested. And the case was dismissed. So I assumed that he was pretty pissed off about how the cops treated him and the fact that the case was dismissed. So the next morning we're voting on this group of jurors, and I'm assuming that the prosecutor is going to knock this guy out for either for cause, and if not for cause, if he didn't hear it, just for peremptory, because it's a black juror. Why would you want a black juror who routinely do not trust cops? And I was absolutely stunned by what I saw. The prosecutor did not seek to remove this juror. I was absolutely stunned. So the trial went on for about a week, and I punched, the, and anyway, that juror was seated as a juror. The trial went on for about a week, and I punched a lot of holes in the state's case, namely that the cop was exaggerating his injury in order to stay out of work longer and get paid. I found out that while he was supposedly rehabbing his thumb, he managed to uh, run a full marathon and finish in the same time as he did the year before in the exact same marathon. And that was just from a Google search I did prior to trial. And, you know, I made a trial of it, but this is the kind of stuff, if you actually put a little bit of an effort in, you can find out when you're researching people. 99% of the lawyers would never have found that because lawyers are just too lazy. And I know, believe me, I know. Now, of course, when I had this one juror, knowing that he did not like cops, didn't trust them because they beat him, according to him. And I had a client, the defendant, who I said was beaten by the cops. Forget the other 11 jurors. I'm not even looking at them during the trial. First of all, half of them wouldn't even look at me. They hated my guts because they were from cop families. But I'm focusing on the one black dude. Why? Because all I need is one. I'm not getting an acquittal in this case, but I can maybe avoid an, an easy conviction for them. So I'm focusing on this black juror the entire time. When I bring out evidence of my client being hurt by the cops after the arrest, I look right in his face. <clears throat> during the summation, I ignored all the jurors and focused on this one guy, the one black dude. And I implored him to acquit. I spoke to him. I made my argument for acquittal 
literally just like this. I said to him, and I pointed at him. I was right in his face. You've been abused by cops before. You were robbed when you tried to get justice. Here's your chance to make that wrong right. This guy is nodding his head. He's pumping his fist. He's going bonkers. Prosecutor is objecting. It's not right. It's not fair. And I didn't care. Because you know the old saying, you can't unring a bell? Well, guess what? You can't unring a bell. It was said what I said. The jury was out uh, for days deliberating, like longer than the trial, which was shocking because the defendant should have been convicted in five minutes. As long as the trial went, they're still deliberating the same number, now more days. Finally, they came back and they said they could not decide on a felony charge. They were hung. The jury was dismissed. And the state had the opportunity to try the case again if they wanted. <clears throat> now, I questioned the jury after, because you're allowed to do that. And if it's not an El Chapo or a Gotti case, you're actually allowed to speak to the jury. It's not an anonymous jury. And I went right to the one woman who seemingly hated my guts. She wouldn't even look at me the entire trial, and her father was a cop. And I asked her what she thought of the evidence, because it's important if they're going to retry the case, I want to know what worked and what didn't work with like a focus group. That's what this jury in essence, was. I mean, you want to see what, what works and what doesn't. She points out the black guy to me who's down the hall and says, you should thank him. He voted to acquit, which is what I expected. And then she tells me shockingly that there were four jurors and all who were voting not guilty, including her. But she said it was the black guy that got everything rolling. He's the one that first stood up for my client. Now, I went up to him and I questioned him. And he said, I, didn't, I don't trust cops because of my own personal experience. And I was beaten after an arrest. Nobody believed me. I sued him and, and the system just screwed me. So there's no way I was convicting your client. Now, none of this had anything to do with the facts of our case. But hey, I wanted to win. That's what a defense lawyer does. He doesn't wear purple hair because it makes him feel good. He tries to win a case and he tries to play perhaps to the prejudices of some of the jurors just to win. That's what I'm paid for. It's to win, not to, not to, to, to make uh, social justice statements, not to virtue signal. And after the case was over, we're packing up our bags and I approached the prosecutor. And I asked him if he had heard what the black guy had said during the jury selection about having to sue the police because he was beaten by them. And he said he had, and I was absolutely stunned. I said, why on earth would you let him remain on the jury then? You had to know that was a mistake. He actually said to me, I'll never forget this. Well, I figured a black guy from the islands you know, didn't like Jews, so I left him on the jury. My mistake. Just like that. That's justice in America. We ended up working out a non-jail disposition for the client. Case over. And the judge was pissed. He was pissed because he didn't get the chance to give him two years didn't get the chance to give him five years. He got no jail time. The point of all this is, is you can go a few months as a trial lawyer without going to court with your hair purple and spiky. You know, it's not going to kill you not to possibly offend some jurors, no matter how unfair it is. It's unfair that you have to worry about bigots in the world, but guess what? If you're a trial lawyer, sometimes you got to just swallow it. We're here to win, not to make social justice statements. Now, Next week on our episode, I do owe you a story about how a dishonest and competent lawyer ended up saving my client. He fired this lawyer, hired me, and this incompetent, dishonest, backstabbing lawyer saved my client from a very long stretch in prison 
and certain deportation afterward. This story exemplifies how, as a defense lawyer, you need to exploit every possible opportunity that arises. No matter how unlikely, in this case, this case that we're going to discuss next week, we created something out of nothing, out of nothing. And this was after five minutes of meeting this client, I knew exactly how the result was going to be and that we were going to hit a home run. That's how obvious it was. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Thank you for joining me. See you next week. If you want, find me on Spotify, Amazon, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find them. And if you have any questions, any thoughts, any feedback, just give me an email. Thank you.